Hello and welcome to the CA Agenda, a brand new podcast brought to you by ICAS. I'm your host, Indy Hoti, and over the next few months, I'll be speaking with some truly inspirational CAs about the challenges and opportunities currently facing the accountancy profession and the wider business world. This podcast is part of the CA Agenda Thought Leadership content series from ICAS, which focuses on the three key themes of technology, trust, and talent. Go to ICAS.com and search CA Agenda to explore our thought leadership content and learn more about the agenda. On this episode of the podcast, recorded in December 2019, I'm joined by David Nussbaum. David qualified with PwC before moving into private equity with a role at 3i. From there, he went on to become the finance director of manufacturing company Field Group through a management buyout and flotation. It was after this that David's career in the charity and humanitarian sector began when he was appointed the finance director of Oxfam in 1997. Since then, he has been the CEO of Transparency International and WWF and is currently the chief executive of the Elders Foundation, a group founded by the late Nelson Mandela. David is also the senior independent director of FTSE 250 company Drax Group PLC. David, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. I'm very excited about today's podcast. I'm, and as you know, we, we, we've shared a number of stages before discussing sort of the show, social impact space. Indeed. And you've had a very, very interesting career journey spanning a number of different sectors. So we'll, we'll start off with the first and most important question. What drew you into a career around accountancy and the accountancy profession? Well, I had two degrees in theology. And at that point, you've either got to stick with it and become an academic uh, or you've got to find something useful to do. And accountancy sort of appealed to me because it would get me out into the world of commerce and it would get me back doing numbers again, which I'd enjoyed at A-level. So you decided to pursue a career in accountancy um, with a very interesting background, having studied theology. And you qualified with PwC or Price Wardhouse at the time. And then you actually made quite an interesting jump into private equity with your role at 3i. So what was the driver of that? I enjoyed five fantastic years at uh, Pricewaterhouse. uh, And I then looked and thought, but this is great, but I would like to get closer to the cutting edge. And venture capital or private equity offers the opportunity to do that uh, across a range of businesses at often exciting or significant times in their lives when there's some big corporate thing happening like a management buyout or a, a expansion capital or uh, passing on to the next generation or a float or something. And so after your role at 3i, you actually then made the move to the field group as a, as a finance director. So it seems like you've always had these interests of, of, of new experiences. Is that, is that correct? Uh, I have, uh, in my career, often wanted new experiences. I think, uh, I think my wife once suggested I had a low boredom threshold. Um, and uh, the move to manufacturing was partly an opportunity to get closer to the cutting edge of business and see it from the inside uh, as part of the decision-making team rather than uh, from the outside as an advisor and contributor. And I guess touching on the topic of the low boredom threshold, you then made a very interesting move from the finance sector into actually a career in the charitable and not-for-profit sector. Well, I'd enjoyed being finance director of Field Group PLC. We'd done a management buyout, a flotation, a disposal, acquisition. 
But I knew that at some point I want to do something different. And while I think, you know, good quality packaging is, is worthwhile and important, I think, you know, being finance director of Oxfam is worthwhile in a more profound sense. Uh, so I jumped really at the opportunity when that came up to apply for the job and eventually took it. Though I did, while I was there and subsequently, uh, have in the uh, third sector or the charitable sector, usually had a more commercial non-executive role of some kind or other because I still have a, an affinity for and, and enjoyment for the cut and thrust of the commercial world. You've had your sort of formal role, but you also took a number of other non-executive or independent roles to, I guess, keep you one foot in the camp of the financial space. Well, of the commercial space, um, yes, uh, using my financial skills, but um, increasingly leaving some of the technical side of that to, to others. Um, and I think that's very complementary with involvement in the third sector. Um, just like when I was uh, a PLC finance director, I also was doing some work as a, ch a charitable trustee. Subsequently, you went on to become the CEO of Transparency International and WWF. So it seems like there was something there in terms of those roles that kept you in the not-for-profit sector. What was that? I think one of the things is I must like jobs with organisations that are tackling big, difficult problems. So Oxfam, you know, I joined in the late 1990s trying to overcome poverty globally. Transparency International trying to get rid of corruption. Uh, WWF trying to get a future where people and nature thrive. Um, these are all sort of huge goals, which in a sense you know you're never going to achieve in a few years. But uh, working towards that a goal can be very motivating, though I'm also somebody who likes practical and what are we going to do now uh, things. And, and, and that tension between big picture goals and, and what, what really matters here ultimately with how does that translate into practical action is uh, one of the, the sort of tensions I live with. And now you're actually currently the CEO of the Elders which is linked to some very, very influential people. So for the benefit of the listeners, could you tell us a bit more about what the Elders do? The Elders is a group of former global statespeople. About half of them are former presidents of various countries around the world. We have the former UN Secretary General uh, and some other very eminent people, um, Nobel Peace Prize winners and, and so on. And... They together, as a team of about a dozen, work to try and influence current leaders to whom they might have some access um, to live up to the highest standards uh, of leadership. Uh, and that goes back to Nelson Mandela, who founded the group and commissioned the initial group of elders. Um, and they are a real team. They meet together twice a year for three days each time. Uh, and my job is to run the secretariat of about 20 people that supports the work they do and suggests what it might be, focused around peace, justice and human rights. You're also the senior independent director of FTSE 250 company Drax Group PLC. So what, what does your role entail with them? Well, as the, uh, the senior independent director at Drax, I'm part of the team of non-executive directors on the board who, together with the executives, are responsible for leading uh, and governing the, the group. 
and uh, that involves uh, some of the routine uh, requirements of, of any board uh, in governance and committees and so forth. But it also involves trying to think strategically about the uh, the purpose, direction, and operations of the company, uh, ensuring it's being run responsibly, uh, and taking account of the interests of shareholders and all the other stakeholders for whom this matters. Not least the British public. Drax generates, you know, I don't know, around seven percent of all the UK's electricity, and a lot more than that percentage of its renewable electricity. So, David, you're you're very familiar with the CA agenda, and at the launch event, you actually spoke about the lack of trust in market-based systems and it being a big problem for CAs. Do you still think there is a lack of trust? I think that in both the UK and internationally, there are still, there continue to be significant signs of low levels of trust in the system to deliver for many people. I think you can see that um, in uh, the UK in the uh, popularity of policies which are challenging to a market-based system, that people are skeptical as to whether market-based capitalism is going to deliver the benefits that they would expect to see for themselves and their families and friends. And I think that part of the reason that's an acute challenge is that the arguments in favor of a market-based capitalist system are usually, or the primary arguments, are usually not theoretical ones that it's somehow morally better or ethically better, but, but that it works that it, it's the system that works the best, that, you know, since the collapse of the Eastern Bloc and communism, you know, that this is the system that works best. But if the main claim to legitimacy is that it delivers, then if people don't experience it delivering for them, that raises questions about the legitimacy of the system and therefore should they, should they trust that this is the way things should be. And and some may say that we're actually now living in what's called a post-trust society, so where alternative facts are, are peddled by world leaders. And so how do you think we've found ourselves in this landscape when we talk about sort of market-based economies and also the challenge that we've seen now around, you know, fake news, etc.? So I'd identify, I think there are many um, things that have influenced that. I'd, I'd identify two particular trends or developments. The first is more on the philosophical side, that we've been through a significant period where increasingly people felt, I, I, I work out my own truth. I decide what's true for me. My experience is legitimate. And if I experience this, then that's the case, rather than um, a, a model where truth is defined objectively and communicated to you through some institution, whether that's a, a communist party or a trusted uh, media outlet or a, uh, a worldview system or whatever. So I think that undermining of objective truth has combined with the modern 
social media possibilities where it's easy for any individual to create and to promulgate news uh, and supposed facts uh, and to do so without much sense of accountability, uh, partly because it can, can, if you wish it to be, be anonymous. But as you've indicated, now we have quite a number of leaders and others perhaps particularly uh, during election periods, but those seem to last sometimes in some countries a very, very long time. You know, the, uh, the Americans seem to be in election mode for <laughs> most of the time. Um, uh, and they don't seem to have much sense of shame at saying things which will work for them and their supporters, whether or not this is true and fair an expression of particular uh, love for accountants. Of course. Drawing on your time as CEO of WWF, how does it make you feel when you see the likes of the USA pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement or the treatment of Brazilian re- the Brazilian rainforest by its government? I think there are two ways I would come at that question. The first is the specific environmental aspect. Um, where it seems to me very sad and short-sighted for major companies such as the US and Brazil and and others uh, not to recognize that we have in climate change and the climate crisis and in fact the nature crisis uh, because climate actually is probably a a part of a a bigger picture of the state of nature uh, not to recognize that to, to tackle this, we've, we've got to do this together. We're going to have to work at this collaboratively. And, and I suppose that would connect for me with a bigger issue, which is more generally multilateralism, uh, which is also a big concern for the elders. And at the moment, we have quite a number of leaders. I think President Trump is probably the, the leader of the charge, but he's by no means alone, nor was he the first. Uh, and, and there are uh, other leaders around the world who who are not seeing the advantages to them and to all of us of having a way of companies co- uh, countries collaborating on big problems whether those are climate change uh, or uh, infectious diseases and their spread around the world or plastics in the ocean uh, etc and let me immediately say we're all familiar with the fact that there are big things that can only be solved together. You know, the internet can't operate unless we have agreement on sort of some of the protocols. Uh, We can't have airplanes flying between countries if there aren't agreements about routes and uh, procedures and standards and communications and so on. Um, So we're, we're quite used to that idea. We just seem to find it more difficult to accept that it applies in some of these uh, uh, challenging uh, areas like our use of nature and climate. And so, you know, we, we've seen some of these examples on the ground. You talk about social media and sort of the use of algorithms to create echo chambers of finding people, people with like-minded thoughts and, and that propagating and, and growing. Do you think this has become the new norm for society? I do think there are dangers that this uh, undermining of uh, objective truth will become at least part of the new norm. And I think um, 
we still have huge reliance on science and people do have a trust in the, the results of science and technology to deliver all kinds of, of things for them. Um, but we also have to face up to governments over decades, centuries, you know, mislead their people sometimes by accident but often deliberately you know the first casualty of war is truth um, we know that the British government the US government the Russian government all these governments have put out stuff that they knew was not true when it was helpful convenient uh, to do so and so we sort of know that in the back of our minds and because there's now much less deference to figures of authority than they used to be um, those facts come out that that this was being said and it wasn't the case. Um, and so that undermines the sense of confidence in government. And then because there's so much material, news in inverted commas, material created in all kinds of ways by all kinds of people, um, people are not sure what to make of it. So you can put out a tweet questioning a, a, a fact uh, or uh, something that's been shown in video or, or, or on the news and you're, you're just questioning it. You're not saying it's not true but then that gap that gets spread with other comments and before you know it some, some hypothesis has become uh, embedded in hundreds of thousands of people's minds and it's very difficult to undo that even when it then turns out no that, that wasn't the case at all. The, the, the question they raised was, was not a valid one. What can be done to regain the public's faith in the system, so to speak? And, and what part can we play as CAs or chartered accountants in that process? Well, I think for us to rebuild trust in the system, um, I think we, we probably need to disaggregate that a bit. You know, there's the political system, there's the economic system, there's the sort of institutional system or educational system. So I'm not, I'm not sure it's it, it, it's wise to say there's a simple answer that will address all of those. Um, let me pick up in particular the, the business um, uh, system for people to have faith in that. Sure. It's interesting that already there's a, the, it seems to be the case that people do put a fair bit of trust in what their employer tells them. Um, compared to journalists and politicians and uh, some others. Um, not that employers are top of this, but they're, they're relatively high, which is encouraging and interesting. Um, but I think part of the role of accountants in that context is to ensure that businesses are, uh, are operating at the standards they aspire to rather than the ones they think they can get away with. Um, and we know that part of our professional responsibility as chartered accountants, as members of ICAS, uh, is sometimes to take a stand on something which may be a bit uncomfortable or inconvenient for the organisation for which we work, but that's, that's part of our responsibility. And uh, the Institute's theme on the power of one um, and, and other such uh, initiatives, I think, are there to remind us of that role. And in addition to that, accountants, of course, do come at things wanting to sort of get to the facts, get to the bottom of it, check things through, that it, it really adds up. Um, and it's important that business maintains that uh, 
th that function, uh, not only in its financial numbers that it publishes, um, which are subject, of course, to huge scrutiny, whether through auditors or through the market, but it also extends to other areas um, such as uh, advertising. You know, what, what, how does a business advertise itself and its products? And we're perhaps not so used to accountants having a role again in, in looking at that and thinking, is this true and fair? And yet, if you look at the regulators and um, uh, uh, standards uh, on that and, and so on, you know, the Advertising Standards Authority is in effect uh, functioning in that kind of a way. And I think accountants, uh, as significant advisors to business, should not restrict themselves to the financial numbers, but should be looking at the integrity of, of numbers that are being published, whether it's in the financial results or, or anywhere else, uh, and making sure that, that businesses are being honest and, as I say, living up to the, the values they aspire to. One of the points I'd, I'd like to pick up on is really around the focus on financial figures within business. And there's in, increasing discourse around looking at other impacts and other stakeholders. So mm -hmm. traditionally, the, the, the financial figures and the sort of onus to report to shareholders. But what about the impact on the environment? What about mm -hmm. the impact on local communities? So what are your thoughts around, around that space and the measurement of, of, of those areas? Well, there, there was a theory that businesses exist really only to increase value for their shareholders. And I think increasingly, as business has taken more and more of a role in modern uh, developed countries, societies, um, it's been clear that society has higher expectations of business than that very narrow focus allows. And I think, firstly, I want to say I think that is a, there is a legitimacy to that, though I think sometimes the expectations can be unrealistic, but I think there's a legitimacy, and for this reason, Businesses in, in modern uh, uh, Britain and other such societies can only exist because of the, uh, the arrangements that society puts in place to enable businesses to operate in the way they do. So we have a legal system. That, that businesses rely on that. We have limited liability. Uh, businesses and shareholders rely on that. Um, so in a sense, I think society is now increasingly saying, well, if you want to benefit from all that, we, we have some prices you have to pay, and it's not just about paying the minimum amount of tax you can get away with, and it's not just about obeying the law. Um, actually, it goes beyond that. We have expectations, and if you don't meet them, that is going to undermine, in the end, your license to operate and your, your ability to function, whether that's because you can't attract good people uh, or because you'll have protests uh, or, or, or because uh, regulators or uh, legislators will, will come against you in some way or other. If we then look at a particular facet of this, we now have in Section 172 of the Companies Act a very interesting series of statements which says that Directors are there to operate in the interests of the the company as, as a whole, or the company and its members as a whole, and of course that includes future ones, not just current ones, having regard to the interests of a whole series of other stakeholders. And in a sense, well, and we've now got guidance on, on when we report about what we've done on that, 
what that means is not just saying, oh, we found out what our stakeholders thought or we engage in stakeholder consultation. Yes, yeah, sure. That's not the question. The question is, and what difference did it make? How did that influence your decisions as you ran the company for the benefit of its, um, itself and its members as a whole? Um, so I, I think that's a very useful um, element in the legal framework that reminds us non-exec directors and executive directors that our responsibilities are quite wide and that part of what we do have to do is to weigh up and uh, take account of sometimes competing interests. So do you think the scope of statutory documents needs to widen beyond just the finances? At the moment we, we can think about sort of impact on stakeholders but does that need to be clearly articulated in, under a particular framework do you think? Well I think the direction of travel is pretty clear that we currently have to take account of the interests of other stakeholders. Reporting is now saying that there means you need to tell us about what difference that made. And it wouldn't be a surprise if we get to the point of saying actually directors have responsibilities to other stakeholders as well as shareholders. And actually that's already the case. So let's take the case of health and safety. It's pretty clear that the way a board should decide on uh, questions of the health and safety of their employees and the public is not by doing a discounted cash flow and saying, well, you know, how much do we think it would matter if, if a few people died and should we put a financial value on that and work out whether there's a positive or negative NPV of doing some safety provision? Uh, you know, when I was on the board of Field Group uh, and we were looking at the safety in our factories, now on the board of Drax, and we're thinking a lot about safety in, in power stations and so on. No, we don't, we don't do DCFs on to evaluate people's lives and is it worth it. We accept that we have responsibilities in this area and we have to fulfill them. And we don't sort of say, well, it's not good enough for the shareholders. We just accept that's part of the job. That's part of the requirement of operating uh, responsibly in, uh, and indeed legally um, in society. And so I think it's, it's an extension of that principle that is being increasingly put upon companies. I, I think often it's quite good if the law creates a framework, you then let the sectors see how to implement that and then eventually the law can then come up and say, come along and say, well, let's now legislate to raise the floor. Um, because often self-regulation can get you better and quicker results, but then you need to come in with legislation and say, but now we have to make sure everybody operates at the new uh, general standard. We can't have people operating much below that. Uh, and that, of course, uh, in my view, applies very much for international business. You know, you have to think very carefully about uh, overseas operations and the standards to which they're operating. And I think many uh, responsible large companies would say, well, w we have our standard and we expect to operate that all around the world, um, irrespective of whether that is, is way above local law. And that is, in a sense, reflecting the fact that multinationals res re accept that just because that's what's legally required doesn't mean that's all what's ethically or responsibly required. Um, asking your company lawyer, you know, to advise is fine. They can tell you whether it's legal. They can't tell you whether it's right. That, that's a bigger question. 
a particular area that is starting to grow in interest and importance is the field of social impact and measuring social impact. It's an area that I'm quite passionate about, but also struggle with. And the reason being is that often as as finance professionals, we like to focus on the numbers mm-hmm. and, and we try to quantify sometimes these qualitative areas and we we get stuck in what we, what I like to term measure baiting because we need to measure it. We need to understand what it is now and then how can we improve that. Do you think that is the right direction of travel? Well, firstly, let's acknowledge that uh, accounting's had, you know, um, hundreds of years to develop double-entry bookkeeping uh, and create a, a, a whole, you know, Bible full of rules and regulations and accounting standards and all the stuff we all love. Um and other such fields are much earlier in the process. Secondly, of course, many things can't easily be measured or reduced to numbers. Let's say the quality of relationships with your customers. Um, There are numbers you can put on that, or the attitudes of your staff, or your impact on the environment, um, or the quality of um, uh, internal relationships between different departments. You know, all these matter hugely, as we know, but they're not so easily measurable. But I think the right response to that is to look for, well, what are there ways we can do helpful measuring to, to see if we can track what's going on and get better data? But we have to be careful about not giving uh, uh, wrong signals. You know, we've all seen the uh, examples of where, I don't know, you set a timetable, a, a target, sorry, for something to happen. I don't know, trains to arrive on time. So then the companies sort of put build the timetable a bit out so that there's a bit more likelihood they'll arrive on time. But actually, they're now arriving later than they would have on the previous timetable, but they might sometimes have been late. So you have to be very careful about these targets. And I think distinguish between a target and a measure. You know, is this is this measuring something so that you know how it's going or is this setting a target and we accountants tend as soon as there's something being measured we like then to set it as a target and we're not always thoughtful enough about what the consequences of doing that might be and as a as a millennial myself and as you start to see more generation z sort of going through education and into the workplace they are starting to look at you know the businesses activities from a ethics standpoint mm-hmm. so how do you think businesses need to react to that in order to reflect the desires and focuses of millennials and generation z i'm a great fan of purpose statements if you can get them right and get good ones um Lots of businesses and uh, third sector organizations have uh, values. The trouble is when you read these values, often it's difficult to think of anyone who would object to any of them or, or for whom they couldn't be rolled out for almost any organization you think of. And so I think it's I think it's more helpful to have something that is more specific and connect to the actual activity of the business. So to give you an example, uh, Drax Group, which is a power company on which I'm the senior independent director, you know, we've thought and the board discussed our purpose and it's very clear to enable a zero carbon, lower cost energy future. Now, you know, that only works for a very small number of companies because that's our purpose. Of course, we want to do that profitably and give a good return to our shareholders and all kinds of other things. But that's the reason 
we exist. And historically, at least, you know, you could read lots of companies have sorts of purpose statements where we want to make a good maximum return for our shareholders. You say, well, that's, that's <laughs> fine. That doesn't tell me anything. Uh, lots of companies can say that. What's your purpose? What, what, why you? What's specific to you? And how does that connect to the work that individuals are actually doing in the organization? So I think that's very helpful. And I, I'm also a bit involved uh, on the advisory council of a, a small organization called Blueprint for a Better Business, which focuses on this question of purpose and then translates that into what does that mean for, for a, a large uh, corporates um, and seeks to engage with uh, leaders on thinking through what is your purpose and what might it mean, if that's your purpose, for the way your business operates. So I think that's a really purpose statement that so can be a really helpful uh, route to get focus and to be able then to communicate clearly and succinctly to uh, millennials or other generations um, what is it? What is this business about? Why, why does it exist? David, we're, we're nearing the end of our time. And it's, it's quite a cliched question, but I think it gives some fantastic um, answers. So what's the one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? Get stuck in to whatever you're doing. But remember, there's a much wider picture out there and keep in touch with that and keep in touch with ordinary people's lives and the, the experience of people not like you. David, it's been an absolutely fascinating and insightful discussion. Unfortunately, we've, we've come to the end of the podcast. So if any of the listeners would like to connect with you, how could they reach out? Probably the best thing is to send me a LinkedIn request, but make sure in the little message, you don't just send the standard one. You say, I'm an ICAST member or something so that I know that there's a particular reason to uh, take your, your request more seriously than some of the ones I get. Fantastic. Thank you for your time, David. A pleasure. That's all for this episode of the CA Agenda. Join me next time and I'll be speaking to Senior Commercial Finance Manager for Pladis, Hamisha Mehta.